My name is Zivyani. I'm Origno. And I'm Umer. You are tuning into Oats for Breakfast, an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Oats for Breakfast is a member of the Harbinger Media Network. If you like our show, be sure to check the other podcasts on the network by going to harbingermedianetwork.com. This episode of Oats for Breakfast is being produced in partnership with Jamhur, a Toronto-based media organization that amplifies marginalized and progressive voices from South Asia. In this episode, we will be chatting about the public health catastrophe currently unfolding in India. We likely also touch on the COVID-19 situation in other South Asian countries as well. I think it might be pertinent to just start at the fact that cases in India have crossed over 19 million at the moment, and the deaths are over 220,000. That's where we stand currently. While COVID has also spread to Pakistan and Nepal in a very similar manner, and Bangladesh as well, um, where the numbers are rising quite quickly. Yeah, and so just to note that this is being recorded on May 5th, And in the last 24 hours, there were 412,000 new cases registered. There was supposed to be a plateauing that was supposed to take place because of the lockdown measures in in some of the hotspots. I mean, there still isn't a national lockdown. I think that that's up for discussion at the moment, but hasn't been imposed. But yeah, we're not really seeing a slowdown in the new cases that are being registered. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's um, it's not slowing down, and it's believed that this is not even the peak that we are witnessing. So it's um, over four hundred thousand cases is not the peak, and end May is supposed to be um, the peak is supposed to come around end May, early June, and then maybe there might be a slowdown. I think the question, like to begin with, would be why these numbers in the first place, right? Given that we have one of the biggest vaccine manufacturers in India, which is the Serum Institute, right? Uh, So I think everybody is wondering that why why these numbers? I mean, are they wondering that? You know, you guys want to know something? The very last time I went to a restaurant in uh, February of last year, we were talking about the coronavirus and, you know, that the pandemic hadn't spread in the way that it would. But um, we were talking about how if the virus spreads in South Asia, there will be no way to contain it. So, I mean, like this disaster that's taking place is, I mean, if anything, I'm surprised that it didn't come sooner. Like the first wave was far easier for India to manage. And it really kind of, I think, shows the fact that, first of all, South Asia is, you know, one of the poorest parts of the world. There's no public health infrastructure in many places to speak of. Of course, in the the large cities, if you have money, you can get world-class health care. Uh, but you don't need world-class health care in a global pandemic like this. Yeah. You know, if you bring other data into focus and look at um, Indian healthcare data, it stands even in sharper contra- contrast. So, for instance, the military expenditure, compared, if you compare the healthcare to military expenditure, India ranks, I think, the third in the world in terms of military expenditure, the highest military expenditure. And it ranks, I don't think it, it ranks in top 100 
of the healthcare expenditure in the world. So that's the stark contrast. That's, that's the focus. And to point out, there was a 3.3 increase in military budget this fiscal year, while the pandemic raged on with more than 300,000 cases, where you see the priority, 3% increase. And this wasn't, this wasn't salary, this was uh, capital expenditure, basically buying arms. Um, yeah, no, I think I, we're, the, we're at the highest for military, like right after US and China, but healthcare is like somewhere in the bottom 10, maybe. Um, on India's healthcare system, so the data is kind of, it's not always clear, right? But officially, healthcare spending in India is 1.23% of the country's GDP, which is, I think, one of the lowest in the world. But then, you know, you find you find things that say, well, they're just you know, the government pretends that this is how large it is, that in fact, there's uh, spending included in this number uh, that isn't doesn't actually go to healthcare. So it may actually be uh, significantly lower. And just for comparison's sake, in Canada, we spend about 12% of uh, our gross domestic product on healthcare. We're, we're all trying to say, and I, I think I'm echoing a few Twitterati's here, that... Um, I don't think South Asia in general is a poor place. It's not. It's, it's, it's a divide of wealth. We have yet to blame neoliberalism in this podcast yet, but we can begin that. It's a man-made disaster as much as it's a, it's a virus. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you guys are right. I mean, I've kind of just blamed poverty and like the fact that these are poor countries. But and one of the global success stories is Vietnam. You know, Vietnam is not a... A uh, rich country. So yeah, this is really about state capacities and unwillingness to to do something about this. Now, I, I have a question for you guys. Um, I mean, you both have friends and family in India. So it would be uh, interesting to hear what you're hearing from the ground. I mean, hopefully your friends and family are okay. They're safe. Um, but I imagine that it's, uh, it's a pretty harrowing outlook. Um, yeah, Origno, do you want to go first? Yeah, uh, so to begin with, my, my parents are fully vaccinated. That, that's because uh, my father, he's a doctor, and he's, he was one of the first frontliners to get vaccinated. But apart from my parents, it's everyone I basically know of um, or, or I'm friends with are affected, infected in some way or the other, some worse than others. And I've had four friends whose, whose parents passed away in the, in the past week. So it's it's spiraling. It's it's getting more intense with every passing week. Yeah, I think the stories are honestly very similar to what you know Rigno said or my own experience with family back home. In fact, today morning I got a call from my cousin, and my uncle is now sick with COVID, and he's got you know he's got very high fever. And in fact, then I was thinking about the podcast and a bit torn between you know do I want to talk about this today because it's so tense and then as Rigno said like people are actually dropping like flies like all around us it's it's not like you know you're you're part of the crisis it's like there's nobody who's really safe so I literally wake up every day to messages on the phone where you know the RIPs never end so somebody or the other is passing away a lot of our professors and you know friends and their parents a lot of my friends for instance I got COVID in like in this wave and honestly I think this the scariest part right now and that's what my cousin said to me in the morning is not that people are falling sick 
you're scared that you probably will need services like you what if you need oxygen what if you need ventilators and the healthcare system as we all know has crashed there's there's no hope there's no, nowhere to go and i think that's why it's it's as severe or you know like you you just you just don't know what to do and honestly like sitting here it, whether it's me or all all the people from india who are in north america right now we feel extremely helpless and and also this this sort of uh advantage or whatever binary between the global north and south is so out there it's like it's naked it's too apparent now what's going on um it just all these sos calls and you know groups like literally it's the whatsapp groups honestly i think that people are reaching out to and who are arranging things because the state has failed the state is just nowhere there so you know i have i'm on a group with 200 people on it literally updating every day that where are beds available where are beds with ventilators available where are the drugs available that might be helpful do we have oxygen cylinders where can you get them filled up like i have like an entire data for anybody back home um uh it's also interesting though you know like all of this together whether it's the diaspora here or things back home i think it's it's for me nothing like this pandemic has actually ever simply exposed the inequalities that exist right and the exploitative character of the current economy of you know what like the capitalist economy because like the virus is affecting everybody but still it's the working classes it's the poor of the country that are at the receiving end of things and those are the people who are dying like every day right like there's no there's no kind of safeguard yeah because i mean for a while we were hearing that and to to an extent this is true right that the the broader problem of the public health health infrastructure has led to a little bit of democratization of suffering so that whereas in the past you know the rich would be able to buy their way into whatever kind of healthcare they wanted now even the rich and especially you know someone in the middle class is having a tough time finding access to oxygen but increasingly you see things showing up on the black market at outrageous kinds of prices and there you know people who have wealth or people who are just desperate and able to scrounge together whatever they can find to get access to uh, oxygen or, or drugs that they need so yeah that that inequality is is reappearing and then also um when it comes to vaccinations right absolutely i think one like the, i'm glad you pointed out the black market because when friends and family were sick and i was talking to them that was one of the biggest problems that people are hoarding stuff because they can but they don't need it right now and which is being a big reason why it's actually not getting to the people who need it and those people died like all of us know people dying just because there's no oxygen available or there's no ventilator etc right um so that's definitely like at the core the other thing is vaccination absolutely i think this has been critiqued heavily um but you know like the vaccinations in india like historically before the idea is to actually like dissipate them freely like without any cost but in this case like in the case of covid uh they are being sold at different prices so there's this like you know there's competition that way and there's definitely and when it gets to the black market it's a lot more expensive so i think the urgent and like the most immediate demand which everybody is asking for in india is that the vaccine be made free 
instead of like these competing prices where again like i only know middle class upper middle class people who are getting vaccinated so as you said you know like those inequalities are being reproduced like in different ways in different different spheres of of the pandemic oh man this is so awful oh yeah no i honestly like i was crying for half an hour in the morning before i was like and arsalan was like you know you can talk to umair and you can we can you can do it another day i was like no but that's the thing it's it should go out as soon as it can right is it's i like it's it's beyond like it's so difficult to comprehend it and it's like mind numbing at times when you hear that you know there's no wood to cremate people to burn people that there's a crisis of wood there's there's a crisis of pandits for instance there are no brahmins to you know chant the final rites etc in in you know the the what we do as as hindus when we cremate our people um and there's a market that there's a black market that has emerged for these brahmins and for wood i i don't know how to wrap my head around something like that right? mm-hmm. like i don't know how to make sense of it you know like they have to compete even in death yeah for a priest to come and and chant the final rites yeah i know the situation and that's why i mean you were talking about numbers before right like the numbers are so the official numbers are nowhere close to the truth like in districts where the government is saying that it's only four people who died there are hundreds who are, who are being burned so they're like lying to everybody's face like it's it's actually mind blowing how much the state can just carry on on lies and then also doing political rallies at the same time holding these big religious festivals like you know so just so that they can hold on to their vote bank one of the the striking things i heard when it comes to people being cremated or not being able to be cremated is that in delhi there was a crematorium for dogs that had to be converted so that uh, people who were dying could be cremated. And I think you make a good point about the the numbers because this, many of the stories and the data that we see, a lot of that is from the big urban centers. The tests are being done largely in the urban centers. The reporters are, you know, in Delhi and, and other big cities. And so, uh, you know, what's happening in the rural areas, we have no clue of where, you know, migrant workers have taken back the disease back to their homes. And you have this catastrophe unfolding that that's not being reported on, isn't even being measured. And one of the the most horrific figures I came across, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this, but that the official numbers might be off by a factor of 10. So that means that if we're seeing 400,000 cases. That means that the real number of cases is 4 million within the last 24 hours. Yeah. Rural areas are not testing. I can speak of um, Southern Bengal, which is one of the provinces that went to elections. There are no testing. Forget about oxygen uh, support or any of this. So without tests, the spikes are quite scary to see what what's unfolding in the rural uh, northern india the rural parts of northern india it's, it's pretty bad um i think it's the same to in in the case of this recent uh mela that happened like a gathering of like i don't know a million sadhus so like hindu saints gathered for for this holy dip that they take every 12 years and it was a super spreader event 
which actually has been picked up by i think media like all across the world and actually the king of nepal i think was also there at the same event and then took covid back to nepal it's it's so interesting how it sort of all unfolded but basically you know this was like a massive gathering that the bjp allowed for and this was like millions of people gathering at the river ganga to take a dip and then they went back to their respective states or you know the the areas they came from and a big chunk of it was from rural areas well yeah i think the the kumbh festival or i guess the way it's being reported here the kumbh mela festival which is like saying chai tea yeah. or naan bread um you could just say festival or mela true yeah. anyway uh <laughs> yeah so that's being reported certainly but then there's still you know smaller scale gatherings and rituals taking place and the positivity rates are also something to comment on so in one of the states i think in goa the positivity rate is something like 50% so for every two people who are tested one of them is covid positive and in other places you know it's it's uh, like west bengal in delhi it's like 25% and up and the fact that it might not even be real like i don't trust 25% for delhi at all yeah it's 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 definitely higher and one of the side one of the deadlier effects out of this positivity rate is the actual um, it's happening already but also the possibility of deadlier mutant varieties and i think the recent one reported from andhra pradesh uh, that's a southern state I think there's there's a variety that's 15 times more infectious than the normal and already we we've, we've seen triple mutant viruses being reported from different labs and this is taking into account limited uh, number of uh, samples being tested in the in the top labs in India um the fact that this this is a possibility and you know if the mutations continue the existing vaccine will not be useful So I think that's where the global north and south like they they really need to sort of come together it's not you know the the imperialism of the global north right now is it's not going to help them unlike at any other given point or any other time right uh, and hoarding vaccinations that's not going to help anybody if it continues to grow in in the other parts of the world I think that is something that people have to remind themselves and remind their state governments as well Yeah it's it's extremely important that that people are vaccinated because that's that's the only way to get out of the situation from in south south asia lockdown is not the answer that's that's an important point that everybody's been arguing for a lockdown and i think it needs to be stated that lockdown is is not a solution in in south asia uh and that has to be taken into account well i want to ask you guys about that because i'm hearing some contradictory kind of Uh, arguments about exactly this and the issue is of course like vaccinations need to ramp up but if infections continue as people are being vaccinated then there's the danger of the virus mutating in a way that selects for significant numbers of people being vaccinated and so that there's the risk of breakthrough infections but on the other hand you're right that you know certainly uh, the kind of lockdown that took place in the early period in india when modi just imposed you know without even you know a days notice like oh there's a national lockdown now and there was this massive crisis where where day laborers you know had to just say okay well we can't earn a living uh, and so the people just had to you know walk back to to their homes hundreds and hundreds of kilometers 
And the the poor in the global south have been have been saying from the very beginning of this crisis that you know if the virus doesn't kill us, uh, the hunger will. Absolutely, um, I think that that was stated very early on, and in spite of that, nothing being done says a lot. So it's it's definitely tricky, right? But because we cannot have like it wouldn't be effective to have a lockdown until and unless the state intervenes and you know like it's basically giving payments to these families who are now out of work right mm-hmm. that's that's one and then the other thing is also like where there should be a hard lockdown is mm-hmm. is on these religious and social gatherings that have been happening right or political and that's that's something they could have intervened like immediately but they did not and they've in fact been hailing them as like safe and that's why the state is responsible Right. So I think the question for the state or wasn't as much of whether or lockdown, it's like not they don't want to lockdown. They, they're not actually knowingly enforcing one. Yeah, I completely uh, agree on, 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 on that point, because, again, looking back at, at the even if we inflate the data that we had before, by before, I mean, before these rallies and million plus festivals. There was a sense in the in the rural and urban hospitals, and I speak this from again anecdotal and personal experience, that the place that my my father kind of oversees, it's it's a um, place which is more than ten thousand population, and and they they monitor them. Um, infections were under control, death rates were low. It they were they were significant, but they weren't deadly as as we witnessed. This was until the beginning of this year, so absolute refusal to mass vaccinate or provide mass vaccination is turning out to be a very disbalanced uh, equation. And I think I wanted to say that, you know, sending out 80% of the vaccines is like that you you have a clear answer from the state there. Like that's what they did at the beginning. Um, And they only put a ban on the exports very recently when the death rate just sort of blew up. Yeah, and I think that's a so. Just to clarify for for our listeners who might not know, I- India is the world's biggest manufacturer of vaccines. And yeah, so for a long time, the Indian state was, in fact, encouraging the export of these vaccines. Um, so one, uh, and I guess we'll see what what this ends up meaning. But one good sign is that the Biden administration announced that it would support waiving uh, the intellectual protections for COVID-19 vaccines. But I mean, that as as good, and I don't know if it's timely, but the, the problem kind of doesn't end here, right? This is a discussion that, that sort of has to take place. Or even the fact that they had these intellectual property rights over something that, that should not have, you know, that just should not have been the case. So I, I mean, I don't take to applauding too quickly when, you know, Biden does something or <laughs> all these neoliberal uh, regimes do anything at all. It shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, whereas most of the funding for the research into these vaccines, of course, comes from public money. And all of the profits that are going to be made, of course, come from the purchases that states make. So this is just a, a pilfering of the, of the public coffers. Yeah, some some of the news was also disconcerting that these vaccine uh, vaccine companies were demanding from countries of the global south. They were asking um, mortgages to be put in uh, um, mortgages in, in in the terrain of 
national banks or the national currency to be put on as as a as an asset in 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 order to purchase vaccines they did that with countries in latin america countries in africa and i think this might also signal a different kinds of global orders shift in global orders the least of which is is a welcome move to waive the property rights okay so in some circles um let's call them environmentalism there is this notion that if we have a threat that seems universal say climate change then we can set politics aside and deal with that threat so the green party of canada for instance takes this kind of apolitical outlook and says to people that oh we're not right wing we're not left wing we're we're forward so i mean i've been sort of looking at this covid situation and really thinking about how i mean that kind of a uh, approach was always nonsense but but if it's not clear now you know i mean that okay there is this threat of a global pandemic that one could argue is uh, a universal threat obviously countries that are better off will manage better but ultimately it it's a threat to everyone um does it seem like we can set politics aside i guess i would ask you guys about that about like whether this can be approached apolitically um so so one how how do you approach this kind of a apolitical stance because it seems to me a different kind of politics in itself to say i do not do politics is a politics in itself it's not a laudatory laudatory one it's a it's 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 a one that that shies away from facing a lot of reality and the second point that i i find again slightly uh, odd here is why is it that when the states nation states are on the on the wrong foot is exactly the moment when we have an apolitical alternative why isn't an apolitical alternative given when things are going all right it's this this is these are the two things because this apolitical kind of rhetoric is also emerging in south asia why don't you talk about something positive why don't you keep politics away and fight for it exactly at a time when the nation states governments companies were were you know put on the stand um yeah no i i mean i think we all are in agreement but i definitely have to agree with this making it a political in fact like just as an anecdote one of these bjp ministers says the other day that you know what's the point of talking about the dead people they're dead uh let's focus on the living you know that's that's the a political stance or whatever um i think in a line what it does omer to kind of directly you know address what you said it it tells you that when the fight tomorrow does come to climate change hopefully we get past this pandemic uh when it gets there this is exactly what it's going to look like it's going to look like a lot of ip you know like trademarks that people will take up and it will it will play this apolitical role in everyday politics well yeah and i think that's exactly it and i would say that we need to inject more politics into this crisis rather than less the point is that you know that we need to take politics seriously that they, there's no politics free zone that you can inhabit when it comes to uh, social crises or or for anything for that matter the solution out of this crisis and the crises that we will we'll continue to face is through uh, politics e- you know even even the the technical minutia of how you know vaccines are distributed or developed all of that requires 
politics and power. So that's what we have to kind of turn to and, and try to develop if, if we want there to be hope. In the meanwhile, we continue to follow the situation, offer any help uh, that we can. Uh, I know a lot of people are making donations to personal networks. I know there's also donations going to, to large NGOs, but um, do you guys know of any uh, networks that, that any of our listeners who might be interested could donate to if they wanted? Um, so just from the top of my head, Kalsa Aid is the is one which is very active right now there. It's also super accessible. Uh, there is a list available as well. So I think if people can just Google, there's a big list for individuals who need money. So there's there's that sort of database available as well. And people can visit jamhur.org and we we have compiled a list of where all they can donate. So there are there are definitely multiple channels and I would urge and request people here in North America to do that. That honestly is the least we can do. Okay, and we'll include the link to um, the Jamhur website um, in the description to the episode so people can click there and find where they can uh, donate. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Remember to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so yet. And if you are on iTunes and are interested in supporting the show, uh, be sure to rate and review Oats for Breakfast. That'll make it easier for us to gain more listeners. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. Mm -hmm.